Well, hopefully he's going to say something encouraging after all of that. Might be what you're thinking. You wouldn't be wrong. Uh, I, I certainly hope and I intend to say something encouraging, even uplifting to you in light of that. We, if, uh, if you just walked in on this conversation, allow me 90 seconds to explain. We're in a teaching series on faith and work. What does what happened at church have to do with the other six and a half days of the week? Uh, to get there, we're thinking about this idea that Jesus changes everything. It's the first core value of who we are as a church. It's the very heart of what all of this is about. Jesus Christ can change everything. He can change the, the past. He can change uh, whatever happened last night. He can, he can change whatever you're carrying in your life right now. And indeed, Jesus can change your work. Now, I don't know if he can get you a new job. I think he could. He might actually leave you in that job for one reason or another. He can change your experience of that job. He can change the person who shows up in that job. Jesus changes everything. And the big ideas we're working with, one is this, your work matters to God. And over the next couple of weeks and the last couple of weeks, we're considering that. Why does your work matter to God? That's what we're on to. And also we're considering this, God matters to your work, why God matters to your work. So here's the, the big idea this afternoon. If you're the note-taking sort, it goes something like this. Work is not a curse, but it feels like a curse because it is. Let's try to do that together. When you think about it, uh, we're, we're considering that your work needs a story. Last week, we considered chapter one of that story. And chapter one of that story is the first two chapters of the Bible. God created you to be a worker. God himself is a worker. When you turn the first couple pages of the Bible, you see God who is there and he's getting his hands dirty doing work. We talked about this Hebrew word, milka which means to like literally get your hands dirty. And when the Bible opens, we see the working God. Before there's any sin in the world, before any of these readings occur, we see God and he's just working. And we see God creating people, God putting people in a garden, and he puts them there to work, not just to sit around, not to wish they didn't have a job. He literally gives them a job. Today we're into chapter two. And as we go through chapter two, it's important that we could look back and we could remember something of chapter one. It's also important as we go through this, we can just listen with an attentive ear that says, this isn't all there is to the story. The rest of the story won't make a whole lot of glorious sense or difference if we don't really wrestle with this chapter of the story. We talked about how we want to be a church that talks about how work is indeed created good. Work is full of dignity, and yet... Work has been cursed. As good as it is, it's not fruitful all the time, right? Who in here hasn't given their all, really poured their heart into something, only to look at it and just say, this is just barren? So maybe you're even the type that could do with something like this. How can we work in such a way where we can avoid those twin dangers on, on one side, this triumphal spirit, I'm going to go change the world through my job. And on the other hand, how can we avoid that other danger of cynicism? As a Christian, showing up at our jobs, existing in our jobs, and coming home from our jobs, acting like God doesn't exist and he's not even close to it. How can we avoid it? What I want to show you in just a few minutes, and it will only be just a few minutes, is that part of being able to avoid those dangers of triumphalism 
And cynicism comes to really grasping the second chapter of the story. The second chapter of the story is that though work is created good, though you and I are created good, there's a great brokenness to it. We have to come to terms with the brokenness. We want to be able to show up at our jobs without becoming jaded. And if we can worship the Jesus who is at the center of it all. So let's get right on it. Work feels cursed. Why? Summarizing the readings that Tommaso just brought to us in Genesis chapter 3, we see work is indeed cursed because of our rebellion against God. It's created good, it's full of integrity, but it is cursed because we have turned our backs on our Creator. Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, that second reading we had, the great temptation then in our work is to work in such a way where we don't make a name for God and we spread the glory of God but we make a name for self and we try to build a monument to self. In doing that, we find ourselves breaking the very thing that God has taught us to do, not to make idols. We indeed make idols. And finally, I think we'll land in a moment where we'll see that that idol problem. It's not something out there. We set up idols in our hearts and we worship those. And what happens in our work is the overflow of that. In just a few minutes, the first thing, notice this about Genesis chapter 3. Our work becomes cursed because we have sinned against God. It's the big idea in Genesis chapter 3. We have indeed sinned against the God who made us. We've turned our backs on our maker. Last week, God's design for work. And again, if we're not careful, we can hear that last week and you can hear the idea that your work's created good. It's good for you to be a worker. God's in that. He wants to work through you as a mask out there in the world. So get back out there. And depending on the sort of week you had, you could hear that and you could say, I don't know if that's true because that's certainly not how I experience it. Work's created good, but if we're all honest, every vocation across the room, parenting, pastoring, money managing, teaching, learning, every vocation across the room, it doesn't feel like it's created good all the time. If we're honest, it feels fruitless. It feels frustrating. That's part of what we're here to see this afternoon. Our work becomes cursed because we've turned our backs on God. Genesis 2.17, if you wanted to thumb just one page over, God put people in paradise and told them to eat, don't not eat from this one tree unless they would die. Um, the, the tree is certainly significant, but we don't have time to go deep into the nature of this tree. You could can, can think of this tree as a bit of a test. Are you, going to, are you going to choose to obey God and have all the benefits? Or are you going to choose to disobey God and have what you want? We see Eve is here and she's tempted. And there's so much to consider about the way that she was tempted and the way that she was led away. There's Adam here. There's leadership. There's responsibility that we need in the story as well. Notice a few things as a result. Genesis chapter 3, it clearly teaches us sin means things fall apart. And that is to be contrasted with what we see in chapters 1 and 2. The creating God is there. And what is he doing in Genesis chapters 1 and 2? He is bringing order to things. He is literally integrating the different bits of his creation. What is sin? Sin is the disintegrating of those bits of God's creation. Carol, one of those days you're coming home from work and you literally feel like everything is falling apart. I'm speaking from experience. You're on the tube, you're on the bus, you're just doing that walk, and you're just trying to like drag yourself into the front of the house 
And when you get in this, like, I think it is all coming undone. That's a biblical idea. That's what happens when sin is affecting a situation. It literally means disintegration. Notice this in Genesis chapter three, sin means things fall apart. In verse seven, they realize their nakedness and their shame, which is the exact opposite of chapter two, verse 25. We notice a result of this is a deep restlessness that begins to overtake their souls. There's a guilt in light of their rebellion. We, we try to do everything we can today in our, in our modern world to numb this and act like this isn't a thing. We try to distract ourselves. We try to numb ourselves. We try to just overload with entertainment to act like this isn't the way things really are. The awareness of the need for clothing, they retreat from one another, they hide, they begin creating different facades that they're going to hide behind, and we have, we have never gotten over this. This is what we do. This is why you're trying to get into relationship with someone. I mean, forget the romantic interest. I'm just talking about being friends. And it's like, is that who he really is? Is that who she really is? I just feel like there's this, this wall. There is. And it comes from here. All of us, when we turn our back on our, on our maker, something happens inside of us. We know things aren't right and we just try to hide. And hide behind our performance, our looks, our clothes, our jobs, the whole thing. The mistrust and the fear, it leads to friction and anger. You see it in the marriage relationship that's given to us. You see God shows up and there's a little interview. Look at the interview. It's in chapter three, verses 10 to 13. Here are the questions. What has happened here? And look at what happens. Adam avoids the truth and complains. Adam deflects to Eve. Eve deflects to the serpent. And Adam ends up blaming God for the whole thing. Adam, what happened? Well, it's your fault. You put me here. And we do the same stuff today, don't we? And deflect here, dodge there. Well, it's your fault in the end. What are you talking to me about? So in chapter 3, verse 8, we see there's this inadequate awareness of sin. We see a moral schizophrenia coming on the human person. And frankly, it's one we, we deal with today. We had time, we could go around the room and we could talk about all the different ways in our different vocations, in our different jobs, amongst the people that we live around. Uh, moms could stand and they could testify to the moral schizophrenia and some kids. You know what I mean? They say they don't know, but they do. And we could go around the room and we could just talk about the brokenness that we see in this text, how it's just part of our modern world today. Results of this is that all of God's good creation is fractured by sin. But notice it's by sin. It's not by design. Childbearing is now going to be painful labor. Uh, everybody has their different uh, theological issues. They wonder about like how many angels could stand on the head of a needle, like that kind of thing. Uh, could God lift a rock that's so big, so big he couldn't lift, you know? Like was childbearing pleasurable before this? Now it's painful. I don't know. But like there's these questions out there. What we do know, we know the weeds, we know computer viruses, we know corruption scandals, they all come from this. There's a brokenness now. It's just running right throughout the heart of creation. We know good things like research into the atom. Well, that becomes not just atomic energy, that becomes nuclear warheads as well. This is what the human heart does. Instead of drawing out the goodness of creation, we find ways to manipulate creation, to pervert it and to distort it. 
Thorns and thistles are now here. God made us to work, but now it becomes painful and toil. That's chapter 3, verse 17. Thorns and thistles. So the gardening that's represented, rep- represented here, and we can all find our vocations in that one original vocation, gardening, tending, and tilling, drawing out potentials and creative capacities. Gardening is representative of all kinds of labor and culture building. And part of the curse is now going to be in each of our jobs, wherever you work, one of the things you're going to come up against now is fruitlessness. Pain, envy, conflict, fatigue, they're now all part of work, part of the experience. Conflicts with others in the work environment stems from this as well. Even times when work is going well, external factors come in. There's a famine that just wipes it all out. And this is how we got here. Work's created good, but it's damaged. It's damaged because we have damaged the relationship with the God who made us. Right. Second thing, our work then becomes selfish as we try to make a name for ourselves in it. You want to turn a few pages. You want to get over to chapter 11. I'll have a brief peek at the, at the first eight verses here. Make a name for ourselves. This is the, the Tower of Babel. One of the reasons work becomes so fruitless and it feels so pointless is because of the powerful inclination in the human heart to make work and the attendant benefits of work, holidays, pay, relationships, status, our primary identity. And this is what we do. There's a, there's a beautiful painting of the, the Tower of Babel. Um, this is on a display in a museum in Vienna. And you should, you should just, you should, you really should look it up sometimes. Um, I, I was trying to watch a video about this. It was like a seven minute video. I'm like, I think I can squeeze that in during sermon prep. And the whole thing was in Dutch. So I just stared. But um, the Tower of Babel, you do want to look this up sometime. You can actually see like, this is all scaffolding right here. And then, you know, in Dutch, apparently they're like really giving you the download on this thing. But then you can read some other stuff in your language, mine's English, and you can, you can really learn about it. But the first eight verses of Genesis chapter 11 inspired this. Well, what's going on in the Tower of Babel? Like making a city isn't a bad thing. God's actually the one who made the first city. It was a place of refuge for someone who is vulnerable. So God's making cities as much as we want to get out to the countryside. God's the one making cities. Cities aren't bad. But maybe they were actually doing something that was bad. Maybe, maybe they weren't actually drawing out the full potential as God intended them to. Consider a few things about these first eight verses. The first humans God commanded in Genesis chapter 1, 28, he gave them this idea of fill the earth. But here, what do we hear people saying? Let's not spread out. Let's gather in. So instead of taking that knowledge of God and spreading it out all over the world, these people... They, they come together instead of scattering the whole earth. Well, that's a direct violation of what God's commanded. Consider the next thing. The people want to assert their own autonomous identity captured in the language so that we may make a name for ourselves. Well, if you're a careful reader of the text, you'll, you'll notice this isn't the first time I've heard this. Let us make a name. Let us make. In biblical thinking, There's something to having authority over something. Genesis chapter 1 systematically names the elements of the creation, and we see the Godhead is present there saying, let us make. A couple of pages later, a few image bearers, well, let us make. 
in our image. Let us create something for us. They want to make a name for themselves within a tower that reaches to the heavens. In narrative terms, they're playing a role in God's story, which is the filling of earth and subduing it that should belong to God in a sense because they're here to make a name for themselves and they're gathering in when God said spread out and fill may also be an echo of that come let us refrain Genesis 11 to Genesis 1:26, suggesting that the people are actually usurping a godlike role building a tower called Babel there, there you actually see the, the, the effect of Genesis chapter 3 Genesis 1 and 2 your work is good you're a worker you're created to work. This is all good stuff. You should be working. You should be trying really hard in school. You should be paying attention into your job. You should be managing people well. We should be submitting to people well. This is all good. Chapter three, we see this whole thing gets wrecked. And a couple of chapters later, we see people made in the image of God trying to make a name for themselves, finding their identity in their work. So in chapter, in chapter 11, verse 3, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Someone had discovered an advanced method of brick making here, wanted to take their talents to a city and pursue the business there. So far, so good. This is how it goes. People want to bring their ideas to a city. Verse 4 is the problem, so that we may make a name for ourselves, otherwise we'll be scattered. So why were they working? Why were they working? Were they working to glorify God and to serve their neighbor? Or were they working to maximize self, to maximize power, to maximize glory, and to maximize autonomy. The radical insecurity underneath it all. I need to make a name for myself. I need to construct an identity so I will know who I am. I need to matter because I don't have a story around me telling me who I am, telling me that I matter. I need to make a name for myself. It's the cry of Babel. And there's two ways they got their identity from their work. You can see a tower that reaches to the heaven and assigns a spiritual value to their work. A we can get to heaven without God, if you will. And their desire not to be scattered over the earth. We all do this, don't we? We all try to find identity through affiliation and people groups. And some of us even come in here week in, week out, and we just try to gather up with a few that are like us because we just don't want to get scattered out across the congregation, right? We all got some of this going on. The vulnerability of being on the outside of that is a whole thing that really needs to be thought about. The final scene is that God comes down, right? Do you catch this? I mean, there's, like this is immense irony going in the text. The first eight verses, we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're building a tower to heaven. I mean, look at our little tower, you know? And on the other side of that, it says, but the Lord says, what's going on down there? Now, he clearly knew everything that was going on down there. Colossians chapter 1 tells us he was sustaining every human involved in the situation. Were he to withdraw his breath from it for a second, the whole thing would have disappeared. God knew everything about that situation. But it's the irony of the situation. People trying to build and trying to ascend up to God. And the idea is that that endeavor in the eye of God is so small that God has to say, are they up to something? Let me come down there and see what's going on. So it is with all of our name making today. I will ascend. I will make a name for myself. And as big as it gets, God's looking. He's like, what, 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 what's happening over there? 
the Lord came down to see the tower they were building. And it's called Babel because their penalty here is they got the very thing they were hoping they wouldn't get. They got confused and they got scattered. And so is the folly of us trying to make a name for ourselves at work as well. The, the word here is this Hebrew root for, for Babel goes on to be called Babylon, a repeated symbol in the Bible for a human society that is set up in autonomous opposition to God, making a name for self rather than recognizing God and trying to fill the earth with God's presence. Might feel like I'm pressing the point, but just this quote from C.S. Lewis, I don't think it, I don't think we can avoid it. He says, now I want to make it very clear to you that, that very, very, very clear is that pride is essentially competitive. It is competitive by its very nature. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. When we say people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but that they are not right. They are proud of being richer than the next person, cleverer than the next person, or better looking than others. This is what's in our heart because of sin. Lewis shows us that we can build better things out of, we can, we can build things not out of service to God, but just trying to get ahead of the, the woman or the man next to us and see how it's at work in Babel. Self-interest, fear, glory-seeking, they're pernicious motives. We don't look at Genesis 11 and think, oh, pity them. We look at Genesis 11 and think, I got some of that too. And it leads us all the way down. Our work then, my friends, our work then becomes idolatrous when we depend on something other than God. This is chapter 20. God says, I am the Lord your God. Have no other gods before me. And then he goes on to give some other commandments. But it's impossible to break those other commandments if you, if you just don't break the first one. Don't worship anything besides him. And, and you hear that and you might be like, well, look, I'm, I'm kind of with you. Like, wow. Sermon on sin on my Saturday. Okay, interesting. But I'm here. Let's keep going. And then it gets all the way down to idolatry. And there might be somebody in here. They just flag up and they're like, Thomas, like this is a bit too much. Like, come on. Like, I know, I know stuff's broken, but idolatry. I mean, come on. That's that's what they did in the ancient world. We don't do idols today. Of course we do. Westminster Catechism, answer 105. The first command is violated whenever there is a disordered love for other things. He asks Tim Keller, what is an idol? He'll say, what is an idol? It is anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. And here's what makes idols insidious. Idols are oftentimes good things that we make into ultimate things. I just want a friend. We obsess about a friend and we think about a friend and we can't release the idea of a friend. And we think we have to start distorting reality to have a friend. And that good thing becomes an ultimate thing. It becomes an idol in our lives. Usually an idol is simply a good thing gone massive. I've heard it said like this, an idol is a good thing that becomes a God thing and therefore it becomes a bad thing. Even people who don't claim to be religious are still worshiping something. 11 million people in London, 11 million people worshiping something created by God for relationship and to worship him. And if not worshiping him, they're worshiping something. I love how Elise Fitzpatrick puts it. This one helped me a lot. Idols aren't just stone statues. No, idols are the thoughts, the desires, the longings, and the expectations that we worship in the place of the true God. Idols calls us to ignore the true God in search of what we think we need. 
The word for glory in the, in, in the Hebrew is kavod, which means weight. And whenever an individual gives her kavod or gives her weight to something else, that is worship. That's why it's really important what happens on Saturday afternoons when we come in here and we have some time, not just on our own, that that's important. We need it as much as we can get it, but we come together to give the kavod, to give the the, the weight to give the honor and the worth of our lives to God. Here it is, God. I'm leaning on you again, God. It's you. But if we don't do that, we spend six and a half days walking around this whole thing, this design to just inflame our own sense of convode, our own weight, our own worth, our own importance. All of us are worshiping, whether we call ourselves religious or not. And idols are dangerous. They bring about a slavery. The prophet Jeremiah, he would appeal to people. Idols make you love addicted persons. Jeremiah said in chapter 2, verse 25, it's, it's like a lover and you're just caught up and you can't think about anything else. And people are just trying to snap you out of it and trying to shake you awake. And when you're worshiping an idol, you're just caught up in that spell and you can see nothing else. It's just what you'll have. Idols, though, they poison the heart to complete dependence upon the idol. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 17 tells us this. They capture our hearts so thoroughly. Ezekiel 14, 1 through 5 tells us, and the idol becomes our God. Where am I going to go? When am I going to worship? What am I going to do? And it has lordship over us. Rebecca Pippert, she's helped me with this one. Whatever controls us then is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. And this is the real problem with our work. Is that instead of taking God's good world and creating things to honor God and glorify God, to serve our God and to help build up the well-being of our neighbors and the flourishing of a society. We lay our hands on God's creation and we fashion items, not in the name of God, but in the name of self and not trying to make a reputation for God, but trying to make a reputation for self. And it is such a pernicious problem. You can't even see it if you visit my house and I couldn't even find it if I were to walk around you. Because Ezekiel chapter 14 tells us, and this is God talking about the priests in his house, son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts. Unidentifiable, unrecognizable. You can't find them in the kitchen, can't find them in the bedroom, can't find them in the bathroom, not going to be near the TV. These ideas, these constructs, these dependencies we carry around in our spirits. We need to see this because we, if, we, if we're not careful, we'll think like our relationship with work, this is like such an outward focused thing. Surely what we're talking about here is I just don't need to yell at my coworkers when they make me frustrated, right? Surely we're thinking, no, no, no. In my vocation as a friend and as a parent, I just need to move through this in such a way where I'm just a bit of a joy to be around. I mean, that's certainly part of it, but we have to go all the way down to the root level to be able to deal in our hearts. And here's the problem. 
you can't fix this by just chopping off like the fruit and thinking it's going to come back like weeds. They'll just grow again and again and again. We have to trace it down to the source. We have to see what are we, what am I depending on here? What is the specific part of who God is towards me that I'm looking for in this relationship, in this experience, or in this dynamic? That I think I have to have this because God is not sufficient. And when we find it, we have to worship our way to God out of it. We see how our God is uniquely good in a way that this amount of money or this amount of pleasure or this amount of connections could never solve. And as we delight ourselves in our God for those specific ways, we feel our souls begin to lift and rise again. And then we begin to move. And you just come back to me like, how, how do we work in such a way where we don't walk around being like super triumphalistic? I'm going to change the world by being a school teacher. And then on the other hand, man, this whole thing is so damaged. I am a cynical person and I am jaded in my job. We get there by really, really embracing chapter two of the story. This work that was created good, it is cursed. And part of it being cursed is there's going to be fruitlessness to it. It's going to feel like a folly sometimes. And my orientation to my job is if I'm not careful, if, I, if I'm not aware of the story of, that I'm living in, I will show up at this job and I will build a tower and a name for myself. Instead of serving the God that made me, laying my hands on the good creation, be it a child or a spreadsheet, and doing things to serve God, to serve neighbor, and to create a flourishing society. There's so much to be said here. But how about a moment when it just gets sweet? Notice this, Natalie. God heals our work by forgiving our sins. God heals our work by removing our idols. And God heals our work by giving us a passion for his name. Praise God for this. Because that situation is described right there. It seems so doomed. And it seems so dark. It seems like I don't know if there's ever any getting out of this. Because some of us can see ourselves in the clarity of Scripture right now, and we know this is what I do. I make stuff in my image. I, make, I, I use what I do to make a name for me. Let's go to the cross. Let's just go there and think, how do we bring all of this mess to the foot of the cross? Is there any help? Go to the cross, because it's where these idols, they go to die. So where's these, the oxygen for these sins, they just get absorbed and they can't live anymore. Let's go to the cross. And if the problem is our disordered loves, if the problem is we take good things, some cash, some friends, some experiences, some pleasure. If the problem is we take good things and we make it a great thing, then we need to go to the cross and have our loves rearranged again. We need to get whole. We need to get straight again. Consider this verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. See, the great problem is that you and me in our jobs in chapter two in the story, we turn up at the office and we start acting like God's not there and we start making a name for self. And God gloriously 
says, I see you in that. And I'm not going to yell at you there. I'm not going to bog you down. I'm not going to try to jam you up. There's no point of it because it's a hopeless situation. He says, I'm going to send Jesus into that. And Jesus didn't have any of those problems. Jesus wasn't jammed up like that. Jesus didn't have that struggle. I'm going to send Jesus into that. He who had no sin. And I'm going to make him as if he had that problem that you're carrying. I'm going to assign it to him. And the exchange here is I'm going to give you what he's carrying in place. His name, his status, his worth, his significance. The cross of Jesus. The cross invites us to come and to worship him. The cross, it bids us welcome. The cross allows Christ to challenge our idols, to challenge our sins, and then absorb them into his own life. It's amazing. In the wake of these next few moments, let's just allow the cross to teach us about the depth of our sins. We have a moment just to sit here. Let's allow the cross to teach us about the sins beneath the, the sins, those idols that we're carrying around in our hearts. Let's allow the cross to tell us how much God loves us and how far God went for us. And I appreciate that some of this might feel a little heavy for talking about faith and work. But I am convinced our lack being able to see Jesus in all of his glory is high and lifted up and is worthy of every breath coming out of our mouth and worthy of every thought and worthy of every keystroke and worthy of every situation that we find ourselves a part of is that we actually don't go deep enough into this. Therefore, we don't feel like we're launched high in worship. So let me show you this chart. Um, this might be helpful for some of us uh, it says, I'm completely sinful on the right and on the, on the left. And then on the right, it says, I am, I am fully accepted. And how do we show up at our jobs as someone who's not just laying our hands to creation and making idols? We remember, this is chapter two, headed to three of the story. We show up aware. We, I mean, I have to show up today aware of my sin. Parents rolling out of bed in the morning thinking, I am a sinner. Hold on, let me keep that in mind before I interact. We have to own our sin. Not like, oh, that's that's something I've done once. Like, no, 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 this is, this is something I carry, okay? And we turn from sin. This is repentance. And if, 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 if God is showing you something today, an idol in your heart, there's your word. There's your first word, repentance. Repent of those near idols. Repent of those far idols. And you get down to that place where if you're having the thought right now, I am a bigger sinner than I thought I was when I walked in here. You're in a really good place. Because it's only when you can get all the way down to that level that the trampoline of faith can launch you up again. And as you repent on one side, you rise in faith on the other. And you're able to start saying things about yourself as you head into the office on Monday. And as you engage with your spouse later on this afternoon, as you hang around with some friends, you're able to say, you know what? Jesus lives in me. He does. A sin is real and Jesus is real. I can be full of one because I know I'm full of the other. God, God sees me in Jesus. I don't have to drag around here. God sees me in Jesus. And Jesus died for me. He's dying for a whole lot of folk. And one of those folk was me. He loves me. He died for me. 
Jesus lived for me, and his life in my place means, though I am completely sinful, I am also fully accepted. And though I am a bigger sinner than I thought I am, he is a bigger savior than I thought he was. What we really need in our work is a full embrace of chapters one and two of the story. I know this is created good. This is thoroughly jammed up because of sin. John Stott, he said it better than anyone. He said, if the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Isn't that good news? In light of all the ways we mess this thing up, all the things we do instead of giving honor to him, he loves us so much. He says, I'm for you, not against you. And he sends Jesus to be our savior. Some time just to be in it. We're going to have ministry right over here in the next few moments. We invite you, please, if you have something on your heart, you would like some prayer for, maybe something's working on you, you don't even know what you need, just come over here. We're here to meet with you this afternoon. We do have to see those surface sins. We have to we have to come face to face with those deep heart idols. And when we do, rest assured of this, Romans 5, 8, but God, he demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ Jesus died for us. He loves us in the sin and in the struggle. He is for you and he is not against you. You can trust him with your life. Let me invite you to stand to your feet. I'm going to pray for us. We'll have some time to sing, to pray, to respond, to meet with our God. Our Father in heaven, we pray, please help us. Help us to embrace the the fullness of chapter two of this story. That things are thoroughly jammed up and messed up because of sin. Father, we pray that you would awaken hope and faith in us and you would keep it alive that this isn't the end of the story either. Father, in the clarity of this moment, we pray that you would help us to sit with you, to be with you, to repent of what needs to be repented of, to believe you for what we need to believe you for. God, meet with us. Receive our prayer. Receive our song. For Jesus' sake, amen.